Is this thing on? I think so. The light's there. All right. Hey, everyone. This is Pat. This is Posh. And this is the Founder Hour podcast. We're glad you're here. We have a big episode coming up, but before we get into it, we just wanted to remind you guys to please subscribe, leave us a rating, and a review, and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook at The Founder Hour. Thank you guys for being here. Spread the word and enjoy the show. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Founder Hour podcast. I'm your co-host, Posh. I'm Pat. And we're excited to be sitting down today with Vicky Tsai, the founder of Tatcha, uh, which I'm sure a lot of you have heard about. And uh, we're excited to finally be getting to speak to Vicky about you know her early days, her journey, and of course, launching Tatcha and selling Tatcha and uh, everything in between. So Vicky, thank you for joining us and uh, you know being on and sharing your story. The pleasure and honor is all mine. So why don't we just kind of kick it off with learning a little bit about where you grew up and, you know, what you were like as a kid. Kind of tell us a little bit about that. Uh, Let's see. My family is originally from Taiwan and I was born and raised in the U.S. Um, I've lived a lot of different places, Missouri, New Jersey, Texas, um, and now California. And until COVID, I split my time as much as I could between San Francisco and in Japan. So the other question that you had was, what was I like growing up? Yeah. I was, I was pretty much a nerd. <laughs> and, why, and what did you do? I mean, what did you enjoy doing as a kid? Um, I was really into school and science and reading. Um, Normal, normal kids stuff. Nothing, 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 nothing crazy that stands out. That, that if you can look back on and say, "Oh yeah, you know, that's something I remember doing." That perhaps is relevant to eventually who I became. Mm, <clears throat> that's a good question. Um, I grew up mostly in New Jersey, and um, then I moved to Texas when I was thirteen, right before high school, and um, in New Jersey. I, I was like a lot of the kids that I went to school with. It, it was very multicultural. Um, and then when I moved to Texas, I, you know, one of these kids is not like the other. I was definitely uh, a little bit more on an island unto myself. Um, I also had a really bad perm. And so uh, I spent a lot of high school alone. Um, and my mom had invested in a beauty boutique at that time that sold, um, uh, skincare and makeup. And so I used to disappear into my mom's cosmetics boutique and imagine what it, what it would be like to feel beautiful in my own skin. So it probably started there. Mm. And, and would you say that, you know, you, you spend a lot of time with, uh, just alone because you were more so like introverted and, and you felt more comfortable that way, or was it difficult sort of acclimating to, you know, a new lifestyle from after moving from New Jersey to Texas? Cause that's like around the time when, you know, you know, you're going into high school and, and most kids probably usually know each other from like middle school and even younger and they're going all together and they all have this bond, but it's, I can imagine it's like really difficult going to a new school or high school and not ha- not knowing anybody. 
Yes, it, it's, it was a little bit of both. I am pretty quiet and introverted, but in addition to that, it's a tough age to move. Um, and the, the kids in my high school, they were sexy. <laughs> they just, they looked good. They're all cheerleaders and football players. And, you know, I had this really weird perm, so <laughs> I just I didn't really fit in. Did that did that in any sh- way, shape, or form affect you, like whether negatively or positively, where you became more proud of your background, you know, being Taiwanese, and uh, or was it something that was more so of, of a negative in your life that you know later you know changed? Oh, that's a really great question. <clears throat> I would say there was probably two themes from my childhood that probably ended up carrying into my value system that has informed Tatcha. One is, um, I don't think I grew up valuing my duality in terms of my heritage. Little kids just want to fit in and be like everybody else. I wanted to, I wanted to be an American kid too. Um, but I, I was raised um, very much kind of with a foot in the U S and a foot in Taiwan. And so, um, it took me a while in my later career of going back and forth between California and Asia and all over Asia, China, Taiwan, Japan, Korea, um, before I started really uh, embracing how beautiful it is to have a duality in your culture, um, just like just like you guys do. <clears throat> so that was part of it. And Tatcha is very much a duality. Um, it, it has a foot in California and a foot in Japan, um, no different than, than um, my duality. So that was definitely part of it. The other part of it was um, I never felt comfortable in my own skin growing up. I never felt pretty. I never felt attractive. And um, when I started Tatcha, I really wanted to celebrate all shades of beautiful and all types of beauty, especially this classical Japanese approach to beauty, which starts in the heart and the mind and is about self-care. And I think that the beauty industry has done a great disservice to women and girls in defining beauty in a very narrow way until very recently. Mm-hmm. And um, I also remember not ever seeing anybody who looked like myself when I was growing up on TV or in the media. Uh, so that that was when I was little. And then when I started Tatcha, the truth is when, when we went and tried to hire PR agencies or work with retail partners, in the very beginning, this was around 2008 to 2010, we got no's across the board. And I was told in no unclear terms that um, there was no interest in Asian beauty in the U.S., that um, people didn't find Asian beauty aspirational, um, and that we were too exotic and niche to be interesting. Um, and I, it probably stirred up some of that stuff from when I was younger, where I was like, you know, we're just going to make this work, man. <laughs> yeah. I, I love that. And I mean, we'll definitely talk about it later on when we get in deep into Tatra and, you know, why and how you started that. But, you know, you brought up a good point about, you know, duality and just, you know, appreciating your culture. And, you know, like you mentioned, both Pat and I are, you know, Armenian, but we're also like my parents are from Lebanon and Syria and Pat's parents are from originally from Iran, but then, you know, moved to London and just all over the world, Spain. Um, and so there's just all these different things that you grab. And, you know, when you're a kid, I feel like that's not really something that your parents or anybody really focuses on. I feel like mm-hmm. it's something, your identity is something that really comes into play later on in life when you realize, oh, I am different, I am unique, but that's cool, right? Like mm-hmm. it, it goes from uncool to cool. And I think that it's also, I think, an issue of time. I think, you know, maybe 20, 30 years ago, 
it wasn't necessarily sexy or cool to be ethnic or to speak a different language or to look a certain way. But now I think it is. I think that we appreciate even models more when they're ethnic or, or, or business yeah. people or whatever. And you see more of it, right? There's more role models out there. So, you know, the fact that you started Tatra, I think, gives way for a lot of other Asian Americans, but also just other mixed Americans to do the same, right? So mm-hmm. I think, you know, we should lead by example. And obviously, you've done a great job at that. Um, but I'm curious, you know, after, you know, this whole nerdy childhood, whatever, what was the, what was your dream? Like, what did you want to do? Mm. I didn't know. I still don't know what I'm supposed to be when I grow <laughs> up. Um my parents were first generation immigrants. And so I don't know what it's like in, um, in your cultures, but in my culture at that time in the seventies, your parents set some pretty standard goals. And so my options were doctor or lawyer. Um, those, those were the two options on the table. <laughs> so I was like, I guess I'll be a doctor. And then after a couple years of pre-med and working in hospitals, I love the idea of helping people. Um, but I felt like there was a different path for me. I studied economics at Wellesley and um, I loved it. It just, it was so um, natural. I thought it was so interesting. So I ended up following a path to business and started out life on Wall Street as a credit derivatives trader. Um, And that was in 2001. I graduated in 2000, 2000, 2001. Yeah. You talk about during high school, like working in, in your mom's boutique, um, did that ever like inspire you to want to get into beauty or, or like, what were some of your takeaways like at that time? I never thought I was going to get into beauty. It was, it was never the plan. Um, I know I loved cosmetics and makeup, um, because it made me feel more comfortable. Um, but I never thought I was going to end up in it. Then after uh, a handful of years in finance in New York, I did go to business school and while I was in business school, I was planning on making the switch to general management um, and did an internship with a beauty brand. I wasn't planning on it. I just got really lucky. And so that brought me back to beauty again. And then after business school, um, I had a couple different jobs, but one of them was in the Bay Area with scientists from Berkeley who were trying to provide sustainability ratings for uh, consumers. They're ahead of their time was really great, but they wanted to provide environmental health and um, uh, personal impact ratings so that if you said, I care about um, gay rights, animal testing, carcinogens, and through that, I still want to know the best shampoo for curly hair. They wanted to, you to be able to check those things and then come back with a recommendation. And so um, the first vertical that they were, were launching sustainability ratings on was personal care. And so I, I kept sort of getting brought back to beauty. Uh, it was never of the plan, though. And so, what was around like what years were these, and what was sort of that ecosystem like for you know in the beauty space and in the personal care space? Like, what was what, what were you seeing that perhaps sparked something in you? Yeah, I guess each of my experiences in beauty ended up um, leading to Tatcha, but I didn't know at the time how it was going to end up that way. So, when I worked in my mom's beauty boutique in high school. I, I definitely got an appreciation for how skincare and cosmetics can impact um, how someone feels about themselves. And then when I interned for a beauty brand in business school, um, I learned a lot about the way that beauty brands work, the big global beauty brands. And a lot of it made me really, really sad um, as, a, as a woman, as um, a consumer, 
um, and then eventually as a mother of a daughter. Um, and then when I worked with the scientists from Berkeley on the sustainability side, where all I learned about was the sustainability of personal care, I started to become quite concerned and aware about ingredients that were going into beauty, especially because my during my beauty internship, I had treated my face like a science experiment. And, um, and I, I sort of signed up to the, to the Western belief that more is more. And so I just, I just put everything on my face and I gave myself acute dermatitis. So for three years after that, I had bleeding, blistering and scaling on my entire face, including my lips and my eyelids. And, um, I looked, I looked pretty wretched and it was very painful as well. And if I didn't take oral and topical steroids and antibiotics every single day, um, my skin looked ridiculous and it was very painful. It was painful to sleep. It was painful to smile and talk. Luckily, my skin came back to normal. But each one of those experiences ended up making me appreciate um, skin, skin physiology, um, health, clean and clean ingredients, and then also just the role that beauty plays in, in any person's life, male, female. Vicky, I could be wrong, but did you enjoy your time at Wall Street? Because I feel like you didn't. Um, that's a really great question. There were parts of it that I, I appreciated very much. You work with really smart people. Um, it's exciting. Um, there weren't a lot of other female traders, so that was pretty cool. Um, but we were down at Ground Zero for 9-11, both my husband and I, and we were 21 at the time. So it was um, quite an introduction to the adult world in real life because you come out of the shelter of college where everything is so safe and everything is about dreaming about the future and you're just safe you're in this bubble um and then we start our first jobs and and we're just you know we're just young kids trying to make our parents proud and earn some money and build a pretty resume and then when 9-11 happened it just sort of um made me really think differently about the value of my life and the value of my work and then my husband got sick pretty soon thereafter. And he was sick for about three years with an autoimmune disease that he didn't have prior to that. Um, and it made which me... Caused by, which was caused by like the 9-11 attack. And the, or, or... You know, it's, yeah, it's, it's really tough to say. We were never able to pinpoint it, but it did happen right after. So, you know, prior to 9-11, he was captain of the crew team and ran five marathons in two years. And then about a month after 9-11, he eventually lost 40 pounds and he's not a big guy um, and couldn't get out of bed and can barely function. So um, we think, we think that these things were connected, but the day that I, I walked in to the building um, and we were in one of the world financial centers that was connected to the trade centers. I walked in that morning, just like any other young, bright eyed, bushy tailed, you know, college grad, young professional. And I, I cared mostly about making money and making my parents proud and climbing the corporate ladder. And then about 24 hours later, I was like, yo, none of those things actually matter anymore <laughs> at all. Um, if, if I'm going to be spending the waking hours of my life working, and I feel very grateful for my life, then I need my work to be meaningful in order for my life to feel meaningful to me. But then it took me about a decade to figure out how to make all these things come together. Tell us a little bit about how you and your husband met, because I know, uh, you know, he's played definitely a very integral role in your founder journey, not just as your husband, but also as a co-founder and, and you know, building this company together. So, like, tell tell us a little bit about, you know, the early days of, of how you two met um, and, 
Um, and then we can kind of talk about Tatcha. Oh, yeah. Mm. My husband met when I uh, transferred to Wellesley my junior year of college, which is an all-women's college. Um, and I, I knew that it was an all-women's college, but it's not till you arrive that you're like, oh, oh like it's really all-women's. And he was a year ahead of me at MIT at the time. Um, and so the long story short is I, I saw him and I tried to introduce myself and he shut me down. And then I proceeded to ask him out like once a month for the next six months. And he just turned me down every time. And then finally, I think it was about six months into it that I, I wore him down and, and I got him to uh, take me out on a date. <laughs> and then it's been over 20 years since. Um, what is he like? How did, you, totally how did you know? How, I mean, because obviously there's a connection between your, um, you know, just persistency and resilience to just get what you wanted. And obviously mm -hmm. that carried over into Tatra and making that a success. What instinctually made you think that like he was the right one? Oh, that no, it was nothing. worth the effort? Nothing. <laughs> I, I, I had no reason to think he was the one. I just, I just didn't like being told no. <laughs> so this was, it was just a way to get a yes. That's it. You didn't care what happened after. Mm -hmm. In fact, after when he finally said, okay, I'll take you out on a date, I almost canceled. But I didn't. No, I had no reason to believe that we would have together. True saleswoman. She just wants that yes. <laughs> I just wanted the yes. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So you said that it took you about a decade to know, you know, after that whole 9-11, you know, catastrophe to figure out what that meaning was going to be in your life. What did that 10 years or, you know, whatever it was, How it was a little less than that, I guess, but like that eight years, what did that really um, – what did that look like? What were you doing during those eight years? Mm -hmm. um, it felt a lot. Do you guys remember that book? Um, the Three Little Bears. This one's too big. This one's too small. This one's just right. I. It was mostly like yep. the Three Little Bears experience where I tried out a lot of different things. And um, I always had an eye towards finding something that felt right. Um, but after a decade of it, I had this really pretty resume with Ivy League schools and business schools and these fancy companies that were, um, you know, considered the best in the world at what they do. And so on paper, it was enough to make my mom proud, I think. Um, but it, it, didn't, it didn't feel fulfilling in any way. Now, a couple of decades after um, I've learned this concept, have you guys heard of Ikigai? Yes, yeah. I just read the book. Oh, did you? So it's just this Japanese concept of purpose and um, that for so many of us, we can find our life's purpose in part through our work. And so I didn't know at the time, but in retrospect, I was looking for my purpose. It's crazy because I literally did it yesterday. Literally. Really? <laughs> yeah, I had read the book a while back. One of our guests, Ashley Merrill, who's oh. the founder of Lunia, uh, had mm -hmm. told us about it when we first interviewed her. And so I think both of us, we got the book back then. And then yesterday I was like, you know, I had a little bit of downtime. I was like, let me just put these four circles together. You know, I got my coffee cup, traced the coffee cup for the circles, put some stuff together. I'm still a little confused about what my purpose is, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work on refining it a little bit as, as it goes on. But I mean, I loved it. And I just loved just the ideas that stemmed from that book in general. And, you know, I think for people, and we've talked about this with several people, it's 
you know, they, you always talk about finding your purpose, but for some people, it's tougher than others to find what their purpose is. Right. And, you know, they just haven't had enough experiences. They just haven't been uh, informed enough. They just haven't met a, a good amount of people to really even know what's out there and what can be their purpose. Right. They're mm-hmm. limited by either their own limitations or by societal limitations. So, you know, I guess for those people out there, how do you suggest that they, you know, beyond even Ikigai, but like what goes into Ikigai, how they can, you know, even start the process of knowing what they love and knowing what they're good at and knowing what makes money and knowing what the world needs, right? Like what are some things people can do? When I was in business school, um, I found the most valuable part was a career program that they had. And um, there's a guy named Tim Butler who has a program that I think is also available through a book um, where he took, I think, a couple decades of people who had gone through the business school and personality type them. And it wasn't the typical ENTJ, INTJ stuff. It was a little bit um, more, they force you to make these trade-offs where you have to choose between time and money, um, you know, money and, and control. And you, they, he forces you to make all these trade-offs over and over and over again until he whittles you down to a personality type. And then um, when you graduate from business school, you sort of have to give information about where you went. And then every five years check in. And then he sort of looks for a regression analysis pattern of for people who have personalities like yours, where did they end up in their careers? How happy were they? And how did they get there? And we give you some advice. Um, I don't think the business school is necessary at all. It's great if it's something that you want to do, but it's just where I was exposed to the program. Um, But part of the exercises that uh, he did in addition to this personality typing was his basic thesis was that, um, that we actually all know around the age of 10 or 12, what we're good at, what we like. We just don't know the name of that job. And then after that, we get so much input um, from external factors, whether it's our parents or our peers that say, you should like management consulting, you should like banking, you should like, um, you know, being a doctor or a lawyer or a teacher. And then you start having trouble distinguishing in your head between your own visions and dreams and inclinations and what other people expect of you. And so he takes you through a handful of exercises that are anybody could do um, to sort of get back to, you know, what does 10-year-old posh like? And um, one of them I thought was, was really great is you just grab a stack of newspapers and magazines. This was in the olden days. So you can also just read the internet now. And um, anything that you feel drawn to read from headline to end, just just grab it and highlight the parts that are interesting to you. And don't try to figure out too much about you know, why you want to read it, just pull it aside and maybe do that for a hundred articles. And then when you're done, take them, the ones that that really spoke to you and look back through them and start looking for patterns. Um, And you might start finding in there things that um, you've always been drawn to. So that's the first part is sort of trying to disambiguate between what other people say you should be interested in and what you're genuinely interested in. That's one. Um, and Tim Butler's book is available on Amazon. So I highly recommend that to anybody because he's got the exercises in there. And then the other part is um, allowing your ego to step aside for a minute and um, just know that in order to experience a bunch of different things and uh, figure out what you're good at, and what you like, um, you'd sort of have to not care what people think of you. And so when I first started Tatcha, it was important to me, and not this isn't the case for everybody, but it was important to me that we self-financed. But that meant that I had to um, you know, take my credit to the hilt 
and do a couple of really not sexy jobs to pay the bills, including, you know, renting out apartments for my super, uh, for my landlord and also being the super for my building. And so I would run into people from business school and um, they would be like, why are you, why are you here renting out this apartment? <laughs> and, um, and they were like, is this your apartment? I was like, no, it's not my apartment. And then they were like, why are you here? And I was like, I'm helping my landlord so I can get a cut of my rent. Like just the ego has to step aside so that you have the freedom to do whatever it takes to learn and experience things and pay the bills and, and just don't worry about any judgment that comes along with it. Yeah. I love everything you're saying. And, and, and the book in Ikigai, like it talks about this concept of flow and being in a state of flow where it's like, you know, everyone's felt it where you just forget about time you forget about eating you forget about everything and you're just so like focused work. on what you're doing yeah. exactly and like most times like those are things you know it's not everything that can bring you flow it's, it's usually certain things and it's different for everybody and so those are the mm-hmm. things that you should probably pay attention to as far as like what's what's maybe a career career or something that you can like a business you could start that's in you know in line with that and so imagine being in a state of flow at all times, like it's the best feeling in the world. So, yeah. um, and then like you said, you know, the ego part is like, why are you, the question is like, why are you doing what you're doing? Are you doing it for other people? Are you doing it for some sort of validation or are you doing it because you want to do it for yourself? And regardless mm-hmm. of what happens, failure, success, like it was worth it. And mm-hmm. I think that as, as the, the moment you become comfortable with the possibility of failure is when you're actually like on the right path because it doesn't matter at the end of the day. Like, of course you want to succeed, but mm-hmm. the the not doing it at all is worse than doing it and failing because because you're doing it for yourself, right? I completely um, agree. Yeah. So, um, t- tell us a little bit about when the idea of Tatcha came to you. How did it come to you, and what was the first thing you ended up doing? The idea come to me. <clears throat> That's a really great question. Um. So after trying on a lot of different jobs, big jobs, um, you know, regular sized jobs, big companies, medium sized companies, little companies, I just remember thinking, um, none of these things make me happy. I have this really beautiful resume and none of these things make me happy. And so finally I woke up one day and, and I said, I choose happiness. Um, I said the words out loud, which is weird because that's not something I would normally say. I went to work that day and I resigned. It was an awkward, awkward resignation, tears, and it wasn't, it wasn't cool. And then um, it was like 10 in the morning on a weekday, and I, I went straight to a restaurant and ordered like a big glass of wine and a hamburger. <laughs> and I just remember thinking, I have no idea what I'm going to do right now. I was in San Francisco. My husband was still in Seattle. Um, he hadn't found a job in San Francisco yet. At that point, we were probably... 500,000 in debt, five to 600,000 in debt, just starting off with. Um, and so I That's did. That's always what, a good place to be. Yes. Yeah, like so, rock bottom. <laughs> <laughs> I just remember walking around on the street and seeing homeless people and thinking they're worth a lot more than me. Um, I am, I am like teetering on the edge of total financial destruction. So what should you do? Quit your job. Um, yep. So I, I did what uh, probably a lot of people in my situation do. I, I started traveling in a desperate attempt to find myself. And um, because I still had acute dermatitis at that time, the only thing I could put on my face without aggravating it was Aquaphor, which um, is like a very thick Vaseline that you put on babies' bottoms when they have um, uh, diaper rash. 
And so I looked greasy all the time. And um, before I moved to San Francisco, I was working in a, um, I was working for Starbucks and traveling to Asia all the time. And I'd fly through Japan. And so I'd pick up these blotting papers there, which are these papers that you press against your skin and they pull off the oil without disturbing your makeup or drying out your skin. And so I had to use them all the time to not look like a greasy hot mess. And then I ran out of them. Um, and it was at the same time that I had quit my job. So I called up my old friend from Starbucks, Japan. And I was like, Tomoko, where do you get these blotting papers? I can't find them in the U.S. The, the ones in the U.S. are they're falling apart on my face. They're covered in oil and powder. And, and she said, oh, they're from gold leaf companies. They're beading papers. And I was like, what are you talking about? And she said, they're, they're gold leaf hammering papers. And they're from outside of Kyoto, generally. And I was like, I have no idea what you're saying, but I love everything you're saying. And so I booked a flight to Japan, and I had never spent any time there before. I had very little understanding of the culture. I did not speak the language. Um, I did not have a friend in the world there. And um, I first I went to Kyoto before I went to go try to find the gold leaf artisans the next day. And... Um, uh, my hotel, was, it was sort of just like a mid-range hotel. I had asked them if they could help me book a taxi for the day so that I could go see Kyoto and take some pictures and just look around. And um, the taxi driver, Tuida-san, he would take me from temple to temple. And then at each temple, I would roll out of the car and throw up um, right in front of the temple, right around the bushes. And it was because I was uh, early in, in my, my pregnancy. And so halfway through the day, I was like, uncle, uncle. And he was like, do you need your uncle? And I was like, no, I, I, need to, <laughs> I need to go lie down. I'm sick. And so he took me back to my hotel and I lied down. And maybe five, six hours later, I woke up and there was like a, this little blinking light. And there was a message for me at the front desk and he, there was a package. And I remember being so confused about that because nobody knew I was in Japan. And um, to wait us on the taxi driver, instead of picking up another ride for the day, he um, drove home an hour and a half away, spent the entire afternoon burning thousands of photos of Kyoto onto four CDs, printed out a picture that he had taken of me, um, cut them out in circles, volume one, two, three, four, and drove an hour and a half back in and left me this package at the front desk that said, since um, you couldn't see Kyoto, I brought Kyoto to you. And that was the moment that I fell in love with Japanese culture and just started I just went headlong into it. That's incredible. Wow. What a story. Uh, and I'm curious, like, what did that mean? I mean, what did it mean to go, like, in depth to Japanese culture? I mean, what are the things that you did or discovered that eventually led to, you know, Tatra and all the things that you did? But, I mean, was there something that happened or a single moment or a bunch of different moments that led to the discovery or to the realization of Tatra and what you would be doing? Yeah. Um, so that first moment opened me up to Japanese culture um, and that it's based in this humanity and this kindness that I was not used to. I certainly didn't experience too much of myself growing up in the U.S. Um, I feel that in the U.S. for me, I can't speak to other people's experiences, but there is almost a direct relationship between how much money you make and how much power you have and how kind people are to you. It sort of goes hand in hand. Whereas in Japan, I found that to be completely untrue. And it didn't matter if you're a taxi driver or a CEO. Um, there is this, this level of respect for everybody as a human being, um, that my soul loves your soul. And I just, I found that to be so beautiful. Um, 
we've been talking a lot about ikigai and the idea of purpose and people sort of know that Japan is known for very high quality things, but you sort of don't know why is it just because they're super anal, but it's because um, there's still a belief there in the idea of a life's work. And that if um, I don't just have a gig and a job that I sort of half-ass and do, but that I find something that represents um, the value of my life and that I put my full self into it. And that if I do a really good job, it's not just um, for a paycheck or for my resume. It's because it's an expression of how proud I am of myself and what I do. Um, and so I just before, found before that really on, beautiful. Sorry. Yeah. Before we go on, I'm curious. Why do you think that that same sort of humanity, that same sort of uh, way of life doesn't exist in somewhere like the U.S.? I mean, as a, a country that's full of immigrants, including Japanese and you know, people from Asia, Africa, Europe, I mean, around the world, literally, where no one's truly like American besides Native Americans. True. Why do you think that that hasn't, you know, come with the people or has it and has it been almost suppressed by other forces? You know, I'm, I'm curious because you clearly know about this more than I do. And um, mm -hmm. I just I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. That, that's a really great question for someone probably a lot smarter than me. Um, I, as someone who has grown up with one foot in the Eastern world and one foot in the U.S., um, I see the values in both sides of the cultures, that, but also the differences. Um, in the Western world, particularly the U.S., particularly California where we all live, I love the sense of possibility the sense of um, an entrepreneurial spirit that anything is possible, that you should question everything. Um, and the belief in the American dream that, that if you work really, really hard um, that you can, you can change um, your, your place in life and that the, the past doesn't have to dictate the future. I think that's incredible. And I haven't seen that in a lot of other places, but there is a lot of individualism in the Western world. Um, and there's, there's pros and cons, I think, to extreme individualism. Uh, Japan is a very tiny country um, with uh, limited natural resources. And so my instinct, and again, I'm not a historian in any way, but my instinct is that a couple of these things together have led them to um, develop a culture that is very much focused on community good and um, the well-being of the entire community versus the individual. Um, individualism, individualism is not celebrated in Japan the way it is here. And there's pros and cons to that either. I wouldn't say that um, right. you know, Japanese culture is superior to American culture or vice versa, but I, there's beauty in both sides that I think are worth celebrating. Yeah, and it's almost like if we combine the two in some sort of a way, that it would almost be like this utopian thing. And maybe that's the thing is that it's maybe not possible in practice. And it is more so, you know, a utopian thought that you can have a sense of entrepreneurship and at the same time, you know, do things for the greater good or for the greater good of the community, which I think a lot of companies aspire to do and do pretty well. Mm -hmm. It's almost like, I hate the word cult, but bu building almost a culty following, but not in the negative connotation of the world a word where you know you do support one another you do support the community and as a result that community grows because they surround themselves around a good cause 
I mean, what, do you think that when you were building Tatra or starting Tatra, that that's something that you aspired to do is that you clearly had that sense of entrepreneurship, but did you also focus on the greater good, the greater good for the community and humanity and to, you know, have kindness as one of your values, et cetera, et cetera. You know, was that something that you thought about from day one or are you looking back? It's something that actually happened. It's something that we thought about from day one, but not in a structured framework. Um, it started off, uh, the same way I think it starts up with most entrepreneurs, which is how can I create an experience for myself <laughs> that I think would be awesome? How can I work with people who are awesome? How can I be inspired yeah. and motivated every day? How can I make something that I'm proud of? And how can I make a difference? Um, a decade plus later, we can look back on that and say, we were trying to create a values-driven organization where it was values that that drive our decision-making in our culture, not just the pursuit of a certain economic goal. Um, and so, you know, I knew from the beginning and with my founding team, they were as integral as this, the, you know, as I am, we wanted to take the best of both worlds, the best of what we love about um, our experiences and what we're experiencing and learning in Japan, but then also the things that we think are really, really great about the U.S. and, and San Francisco and bring them together. Um, so that, that's really kind of a founding principle of the company is, is this the duality? Um, we knew that we wanted to make a difference in the community, studying economics and coming from wall street. Um, I have a very real sense of the externalities of business. And I do think that businesses play an important role in, um, providing social good and that we haven't necessarily thought of that as the role of business in capitalism, but, but I think it should be. Um, and so we uh, formed a partnership with an organization called Room to Read, and they're actually one of the leading nonprofits globally for children's education. Um, and we looked back and said, if we're going to participate in the beauty industry, and the beauty industry has historically told women that you are valuable when you're young and your value as a human being um, goes away as you get older. And the whole anti-aging thing and fighting in the hands of time is, is because we don't value people as they age as much. And that also we've told women that beauty has a very, very, very narrow definition. You have the symmetry, you have the shade of skin, you have eyelashes that are this long and a nose that is this pointy. Um, and we said that is wrong. And um, Tatcha was launched the day that I had a daughter. And I, I thought, I'm not, going, I'm not going to perpetuate these things. So um, being pretty unabashed about celebrating all shades of beautiful, about celebrating a a beauty culture that has not historically been celebrated here, but I think has value to add to everybody. Um, and then funding girls education in, in partnership with Room to Read. So we just celebrated um, 4 million days of school for incredible girls around the world, um, Southeast Asia and Africa largely. And these are girls who otherwise would not have a chance to break out of the intense cycles of poverty that come in low-income countries. And now they have the opportunity to change their communities. So funny you mentioned Room to Read. I actually had an organization in college where we were collecting and donating books uh, to Room to Read as well. So yeah, really? it's, a great, it's a wonderful. Yeah, yeah. I, I had uh, it was like through I think a uh, Better World Books Club or Better World Books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I love Better World with Books. Room to Read. Yes. Yeah. So, um, it, so I want to talk about sort of what happens. Yeah, I want to talk about what sort of happens after you visit Kyoto and you fall in love with the culture. Like, what do you? Did you? Do you just? come back and you're like, all right, I'm going to start a beauty brand or what was there, was there something in between that time? Oh yes. I forgot two critical parts of the story, the whole beauty piece of it. <laughs> 
So after I met the taxi driver the next day, I went to this little town outside of Kyoto and um, met the Goldie Fartisans. And they, I asked them, is it true that you have hammering papers here that are used as beauty products? And they said, yes. And they showed me these massive hammers that are made out of like stone that just like pound this gold into few micrometers of thickness. And in between the gold is this paper, a very special kind of paper so that the gold doesn't stick together. Otherwise you just get a big gold hammer. And I was watching it and the the gold is so thin, it moves like water. And then the paper in between, they have to move it with these special kinds of, um, the special chopstick and the paper they used to just throw away because it's already been used to hammer the gold. And they said the geisha and kabuki actors used to come by and pick them up and use it to freshen up their skin, you know, especially because they have all this performance makeup on. And I, I said, I don't understand how the byproduct of the gold leaf hammering manufacturing process leaps industries and becomes one of the first beauty care items ever because they confirm that it's, that's been the case for a few hundred years. And the cosmetics industry, at least in the Western world, has not been around for hundreds of years. I mean, America has not been around for hundreds of years. And so... Um, I asked them how that leap happened. And they said, I don't know, you would have to ask a geisha or a kabuki actor. And then I said, I know kabuki actors are real, but are geisha real? And they said, yes. And I was like, can I meet one? And they said, sure. And so they introduced me to a geisha and I had a translator with me. And um, I remember it was July. I was pregnant. It's hot. I'm, I'm trying to look like a lady in this tea house and I'm, I'm sitting on my knees and I'm sweating so badly that I'm just like sliding off of my own sweat. And this beautiful, beautiful geisha walks in and she's got the full performance makeup and the hair and the kimono. And, um, she was breathtaking. She was so breathtaking. I cried. I'd never seen anything that beautiful. And she was very patient when I asked her, I don't know, two hours chock full of questions about her beauty ritual and at that time, I was pregnant, and I had been—I um, had acute dermatitis. I didn't want to use steroids and antibiotics in my face anymore. I had been working with scientists from Berkeley and knew that I was absorbing five pounds of chemicals into my skin a year because of my personal care products, and some of it was not leaving my body, that there was this concept of bioaccumulation, and that I was passing things over to my daughter. And because I knew that her beauty rituals predated the petrochemical industry, I thought maybe there's something I can learn from her. Like I wasn't looking for that makeup look because um, that's quite a look, but I thought maybe there's something here to learn. And um, she answered my questions and then she directed my translator and I to a little shop where um, she uh, gets her beauty care. So we went to the shop the next day and I started seeing these geisha coming in and out, picking up these things. And I didn't know what they were, but I would watch them out of the corner of my eye because they, when they're, are not in performance makeup. They're kind of like ballerinas or models. They keep it really fresh and, and like they let their skin breathe. And they had skin like like children, like babies. It's not even like good skin for a 20-year-old. They had good skin for like a 10-year-old. Like it was amazing skin. So if they reached for this oil, I'd reach for that oil. They reached for that powder. I reached for that powder. Um, I filled my basket. My translator had to put little sticky notes in English on all of the packaging to say, you know, this is seaweed powder, add water to it, make it a mask, leave it on. I took it home. Um, I used half of it wrong, but eight weeks later, my skin healed. And this was after three years of acute dermatitis where my doctors had said that I had permanently damaged my face. Um, so that was one half of the story. The other half of the story is I was so in love with these blotting papers and the whole story behind them that I had called my husband that night and said, I'm in love with these blotting papers and I'd like to buy 
10,000 of them and bring them to the US because they won't they won't let me buy any less. <laughs> they said I can't buy them unless I buy 10,000. Um and my husband was like how are you, how are we going to pay for that? And and the only thing I had left of any value was my engagement ring. So I said I'll just sell my engagement ring and I'll buy these. Um so I I bought the blotting papers and my skin was healing. I tried to find the ingredients for the skincare stuff in the US because at that point I still wasn't totally sure was there a brand in here was there an opportunity and then I went everywhere I could Japantown Chinatown Koreatown eBay traditional Chinese medicine places um, for those same ingredients that I found because I recognized a lot of them from TCM which is traditional Chinese medicine when I was growing up I couldn't find any of it in the US and so it just the path just kind of kept converging and pushing me there I think the first question that you asked was, how did I come up with the idea? So I never came up with an idea, if you will. I just got really lucky. I feel like I stumbled into a portal from the 1800s in Japan where everything was beautiful, romantic, and pure, and natural. And it healed me. It healed my skin. It healed my soul. And I just thought I need to create the steady supply because um, I need it in my life. And it just went from there. And and was the idea that, you know, if I am suffering from this condition and, and it's helping me, then there must be a, a lot of other people out there that are in the same boat? Or like, did you have to like go out, go out and do some like market research and the whole businessy stuff uh, to, to validate that? Or were you like, you know what, like it's, it's such an amazing solution that I like I'm, I'm in love with. I want to, I want to bring this to more, more, more people. So I just have to figure out how to scale this thing. Um, and like you said, figure out this sort of supply chain. Um, cause when you put your engagement ring on it, like, you know, it's for real. So like, <laughs> what? Like, you were serious, obviously, but were you thinking that way where I just need to like bring this to more and more people and it'll I, work? I think for the first time in my life, I stopped trying to live my life for a pretty resume and to make my parents proud and try to please other people. Like I, it goes back to the question that you asked earlier on, which is, how, how do you go and start finding your ikigai, your purpose, and you just have to turn off the ego? It was the first time in my life that I was like, I'm going to turn off my ego. I have, I have hit rock bottom. I have, and my only get out of jail free card was going to business school, and I've already played that card. So now I just have to follow my heart and see where it takes me. Um, I did not do any market research. Even now at Tatcha, we don't really do any market research. Um, we do what people force us to, to validate what we already want to do, but we, we really don't do it. Um, but I did feel like if these Berkeley scientists um, have all this data available to them to show that there's a real issue in the beauty industry with the ingredients that we use, um, and the internet makes all of this stuff apparent, it's only a matter of time before people start questioning um, what they're putting in their bodies and lots of women become pregnant every year. And when they become pregnant, their dermatologists, not their dermatologists, I'm sorry, their, their OBGYNs tell them all these things that they can't eat, touch, do anymore because you want to keep your body really clean. And, um, I just felt like I, I'm not unique or special in my needs with the ex exception of the fact that I had acute dermatitis. So if other people feel this way, and I don't think that there's a solution readily available out there, then maybe there's other people like me who would benefit from this. So you buy this 10,000, you know, 10,000, what was it? I mean, what were you bringing back? Was it just one product or was it a bunch of different products? 
Mm, it was just the blotting papers, the original blotting papers from the Goldie Fartisans, and um, they shipped them over, and uh, I created a brand, and I put our name on it, um, because I wanted to leave it really, really pure, and that was the first two years, and then when I realized that the other that things was, I had... Was it still called Tatra? Uh, yes, it was, it was Tatra. And then... And what was the um, inspiration behind that? The name? I had this really amazing creative co-founder um, who had been the global head of creative for Starbucks and started his own creative agency when Tatcha started. And um, we were talking about a name for the brand. And I said to him that I would love her to feel like an exhale, like air, like you can just let go <laughs> and just, <laughs> just relax a second. And um, so he actually came up with the name Tatcha. And then shortly thereafter, like within weeks, um, another one of my founding team members, Nami Onodera, joined, who's still with us today. And she joined as a full-time researcher just to research Japanese culture and teach me. And um, she said, oh, when I saw Tacha, I assumed that it was short for uh, Tatehana, which is the um, art of a single standing flower in Japan. And it symbolizes the beauty of something when you strip away all the excess, uh, especially from nature. And we thought that was such a beautiful um, way to summarize everything that we hope the brand can stand for. And so we said, okay, then Tacha is, is short for Tatehana, Tachibana, two different ways to say it. Um, so that's where the name came from. And then when I realized that none of those, those ingredients or formulas were available in the U.S., um, or even in Japan, I actually flew back to Tokyo and I went to the department stores and tried to buy it from the Japanese brands. And, and I would say, does anybody have rice powder that I can wash my face with? And they were like, I don't think anybody's done that. Like for a couple of generations, it's not a thing anymore. And everything I asked about, everybody's like, yeah, that's not a thing. Um, and so then I, I went to contract manufacturers because I would say 98%. I made that number up, but it's probably right. Probably probably 98% of beauty brands, you go to a contract manufacturer and you just white label. They bring out your stock formulas, your stock products, you smack your name on, you're out the door. I, I thought that was the only way to go. And so I did go and try to find contract manufacturers in Japan. And I said, do you make anything like this, this rice powder, this camellia oil? And they said, no. And they, they would take me to their archives and they like these wooden bookcases with their products from the 1800s. And they're like, we haven't made that since this time. That's not fashionable anymore here. Um, so no. And because I also was focused on clean and I had this huge no-no list of ingredients and excipients, which is um, something that comes up when, when you're processing materials, um, none of these manufacturers formulated that way either. So then I got really lucky and I met um, this guy, Masato Tagawa, who is one of the most famous skincare scientists in Japan. And he uh, was an independent chemist. And um, I told him I'm in love with Japanese beauty culture. I'm in love with these ingredients that have healed my skin. I would like to create a brand that honors this in a very pure sense. And I will never limit your cost of goods. The formulas can cost whatever they're going to cost. And I will figure out a way to make them affordable to um, clients. And maybe that means we just have to use the internet. And um, he said, okay, I'll do it. And so after myself and Nami um, in, in the U.S. and uh, my creative partner, the next several people who joined us were all in Japan, all scientists. And we just started making it from scratch. Wow. 
I feel like this could be like a movie. It's like you discover this like elixir of life and like it hasn't been used in generations and then you just bring it to the masses and just like feel it's, it's awesome. Um, uh, so, so here you were like, you hadn't, you, you hadn't ever like started a business before or ran a, you know, a company. No. Um, so what were those early days? Like what was some of the maybe like early challenges that you faced aside from, you know, bringing this product um, over to the U S like what were some other things that you had, you know, was it was a challenge for you? Um, I mean, how much time do you have? It, d- despite having worked <laughs> at some of the most famous businesses in the world and having gone to one of the fanciest business schools in America, I realized very quickly that I was completely unequipped to become an entrepreneur. Um, I definitely got starting businesses for dummies. I think that's what it was called. Um, I went to like the small business website and read everything that I could. Um, there weren't entrepreneurs in in my circle that I could ask questions to. And they didn't have things like the founder hour. You know, I'm so glad that you're doing this because it would have been an incredible resource to me, which is also why I want to be really transparent with people about our story. Um, I made every mistake in the book. Like you would think that my background would have helped me save like at least some percentage of mistakes. But if you name the mistake, I have made it. I have run out of money. Um, I have hired the wrong people. I have uh, made every mistake in the book that you can as a leader. Um, the only thing that we've never done wrong is we've never done wrong by our clients. But aside from that, you name it, I've done it. <laughs> but see, I think that that is the secret recipe for being an entrepreneur right it's i think it is messing up that many times but making sure that your core product or the person or the people that you serve that that part of your business is always right and moral and just and everything else i mean you could always figure out you hire the wrong person you could fire that right wrong person and hire the right one there's always solutions but i think as soon as you start losing a client and losing the client's trust whether you're in a product or service business, it's, I mean, it's done, right? Like, and especially these days, like back when you launched 2009, 2010, I mean, social media was around, but not as much as much as it is now, Mm -hmm. right now Mm -hmm. you see a bad product. That's it. Somebody goes on Instagram, posts a picture. This product sucks. You're done. They go on the up, they write a review. You're done. They go on Google, write a review. You're done, right? Amazon, Mm -hmm. you're done. So, you know, it's almost like now you have to be perfect at all times. So all those other things that happen on the back end. Only you see those, you know, problems. And I think that that's what it is to be an entrepreneur. It's like to manage all those things internally, but to make sure that on the outside, it looks nice and easy. I think that's why people almost always now want to become entrepreneurs because on the outside, it looks like the greatest thing in the world, but they don't realize that it's basically just this, you know, series of mistakes that just look like wins and it's how you almost spin it or come out of it. So it's really interesting to see that you know somebody like you who really didn't know what they were doing just did it i mean like i don't think anyone knows frankly like you could even if you were an entrepreneur a new business you got to treat it like it's it's whole new thing so Mm -hmm. uh, it's definitely very inspiring to hear you say that and uh, hopefully the people that are listening to that and have an idea or have something that they want to start that they just do it you know like that they should there's nothing that stops yeah them. and to that point like the truth is no one can really prepare for it like you can't ever no matter how much like you said like work experience you have that you've worked at this company or that company or gone to this business school or that business school like you're never yeah. going to be able to learn the the things that you need to learn to be able to be a successful entrepreneur the only way you learn is by doing and 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 by entrepreneur like you know we're talking about doing something new we're doing 
if you want to, you know, go and do the same thing that someone else has been doing, then there's obviously a blueprint for that, right? You can Mm -hmm. study it, you can study case studies and this and that, and you just go and replicate it. And sure, you might make a little bit of money, but if you want to truly create something revolutionary, something that's going to change the world or change people's lives, like, and it's not, hasn't been done before, then there really is no blueprint. So like Posh said, the only way to do it is by, by learning or by doing learning. Mm-hmm. Is it's by a little doing. bit like being a parent. But, yeah. You can't read a book about it. You just got to yeah, do it. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's funny going off of what Pat said, like this wasn't, and I'm playing devil's advocate here, but you weren't the first skincare brand in the world. Like there's been skincare yep. brands there. came. There were brands after you. There's brands today. There's going to be brands tomorrow. What made Tatcha different? I mean, like if somebody was buying skincare products online or in retail or whatever the case may be, mm-hmm. or whatever the case is going to be in the future. I mean, why Tatcha? You know, was it, was, was your target audience folks who look like you or was it just anybody? And then did it expand? I mean, what, what did the, what did that look like? We definitely didn't have a target audience to begin with. It, I, I would have been happy with everybody and anybody who would be willing to come to our website and try something. Uh, one weekend, I zeroed out all the pricing by mistake, and I still didn't get an order. Um, <laughs> I actually did get an order from uh, an old friend, and uh, she put in the order and then was like, hey, girl, you shouldn't give your stuff away. And I was like, noted. I'll ship you that order, though. Um, I... There's a lot of really great brands out there and there's a lot of really great products. And so when I think about the role that we play in our clients' lives, what I always try to think about is just um, how can we be of service to him or her? Um, I think a brand is a promise and um, nobody's perfect and no business is perfect and no brand is perfect. We make mistakes all the time. But it's like a relationship where um, we want to take care of other people. We want them to feel um, beautiful. We want their skin to be healthy. And we want them to know that we care about taking care of them. And that when we mess up, because we do, um, that we're always going to be honest about it and do everything that we can to make it right. It's just like being in a relationship with with one person, except you're in a relationship with hundreds of thousands or millions of people. Um, right. So what do I think is different? Um I don't think that there's enough clean brands out there yet, but there's a lot of demand for it. And by clean, I mean ingredients that you feel really good about putting into your body and that can affect the health of your body as well as your skin. Um, I think in the past, because of the our industry, brands tended to focus on your retail partner. Your customer was your retailer, not your client. And so if you were a customer, um, like, you know, a, a woman and you bought a face cream from a brand and it gave you a reaction, you can't really call up that brand and say, can you help me figure it out? Did I get the wrong thing? Like there's, there's not really that sense of um, direct connection between the brand and, and the, um, the client. Um, when we first started, none of the retailers would pick us up. And because our formulas are very expensive, they're made in Japan, they're made from scratch, like a couture dress. Um, we build, we do everything from scratch, even our important raw materials. We, we'll grow the crop. We'll extract it ourselves. We'll, uh, we'll do everything ourselves. It can take me four years to make a formula and 50 to $70,000 of clinical testing per formula before we bring it to market, um, plus custom packaging, plus custom everything. And so um, I think that there's a lot of people like me who have been looking for a long time for something that's healthy, that's something that's high quality, but also something that's true. Cause you sort of know when somebody's selling you 
snake oil marketing. <laughs> you, you, you can sort of feel it. You kind of know. Um, and Just then there's the other whole people. bunch of scammers that are out there. I don't think people realize how smart consumers are. Like they just think that they like people will just really like fall smart. for it. Yeah, yeah. And in the past, if you put the right logo on something, you know, we would buy it. Oh, I, I'm a woman. Oh, you, you put you put that badge value on there. I'll pay that two hundred dollars for a cream. Those times are over. <laughs> no, no, no. People want to know. It's there. Was there like a was there like a moment where like something happened where, you know, it, it started taking off or was it just like a series of sort of gradual things that, you know, um, ended up growing the business? Ooh, that's a really good question. Um, I would say the it, we're over 10 years old now. And for the first seven years, I felt like a flightless bird, like constantly flapping my wings. And I, I might like jump for a little bit and then, and then um, make a little bit of progress. But it didn't, it never felt like a lot of progress. There were a few things that that were major turning points for us. Um, one was, um, we had these amazing makeup artists who supported us from the beginning when no PR agency would pick us up. And I certainly couldn't get a meeting with an editor. Um, and they were early on in their careers when I met them and out of the goodness of their hearts and friendship, um, they supported us and they have gone on to become some of the most famous artists in the industry. So that helped. Um, certainly. So that was sort of round one round two was, um, we were in my garage. There was 15 of us at this point. I'm probably worth close to negative a million dollars and I'm still delivering packages in the back of my car or with a baby carriage. Um, and I people thought, working in your home garage. Mm-hmm, yeah, wow. that was fun. <laughs> um, and so we're, I remember I sat there with my, my co-founder Brad and we were like, what are we going to do to let people know that we exist? And there were these really great brands um, that had scaled and they were independent brands prior to us, uh, Philosophy and Bear Essentials. And they had really broken through on a combination of QVC and Sephora. And so I was like, let's try out QVC. So I, I went on QVC uh, one day and, and just brought a couple cleansers with me. And um, we sold more in a minute than I had sold in the entire month everywhere else. Um, and then five years later, we entered Sephora, and that was another kind of juggernaut. So each one of these things kind of caused a, a takeoff. But the biggest thing that happened was when social media came around. And as you said, clients are very smart, and um, they know the difference between snake oil and not. They know what a good formula is. They know what results are. And these influencers showed up, and I love them. There were these awesome young people from all over the country and all over the world. And um, they weren't beholden to anybody and they weren't trying to make a coin. They were just telling the truth about the products that they loved. And so, you know, these amazing influencers, Patrick Starr, Jeffree Star, they just um, started talking about the products and then it took off from there. And so it's been a lot of, a lot of blessings, I would call it. But did they just happen to like find out about it and, and post about it? Or did you have some sort of dialogue with them before? You know, I met Patrick Starr at an event and um, he was so kind and um, he was interested in learning more about the business side on brands. And I was trying to understand how to use social media. And so it was sort of a, a knowledge exchange that became a friendship. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so I'd be like, okay, so 
this is how you work with a, a manufacturer. And he was like, okay, this is how you use Snapchat. <laughs> <laughs> and then he introduced his friends. Friend. You know, you, you mentioned that it's, you know, been like nine, 10 years of just this bumpy ride and not, not always bumpy, but that there's been ups and downs along the way. But last always year, obviously, you know, 2019, yeah, 2019, there was, you know, a big up um, and Tatra ended up getting acquired. And talk to us a little bit about what led to that, how it started and, you know, obviously what the result was and how that's been since then. Yeah, sure. We we never started the company to sell it. That was never the goal. Um, the goal was to create something that we would love. And then once we loved it so much, then the goal evolved and it changed into, we want this to outlive us. Because when you love something, you want it to go on, even if you can't always be the one to protect it and take care of it and grow it. Um, and so then we started really thinking about what is the 100-year plan for our company? Because we we fall in love with our clients. Um, people don't change their skincare often. They change their makeup all the time, like they change their, their clothes, but they don't change their skincare um, frequently. And when they do, it's normally a major life event. So a great life event, like they got pregnant, um, so they're careful about what they put in their bodies they're getting married for the first time first big job or the the other life events um cancer um, loss of a loved one loss of a child which also affects your body as a woman and then therefore affects your skin and so our relation like we have a mad passionate deep love affair with these clients because they take us into the hospital with them they've taken me onto their deathbeds they've taken me into their delivery rooms, especially with social media and Snapchat, they'll take me, they'll take me with them. I've been there. And because I believe a brand is a promise, I just always thought, how are we going to make sure that we always maintain this promise? And when you grow very quickly, because we grew between 40 and 80% a year, every year for the last decade, um, even when we made mistakes, um, it's like a car that's going faster and faster. It needs more and more gas. And, and I started getting really, really worried about as we get, bigger and we're still small but as we get bigger how do i make sure that we don't lose control and then choices start getting made that ultimately break the promise to the customer um so we we had acquisition offers my first acquisition offer came when we were two weeks old the next one when we were six weeks old and we've gotten acquisition offers and interest probably every six months for the last 11 years um but we never entertained it until Unilever came along, um, and the biggest reason was because they are they were creating a purpose driven organization, um, and they were only looking at brands that have a purpose. And if you didn't have a purpose, then you couldn't be a part of it. And so our room to read giving model was actually the single most important part of our brand to them, and it's protected for life. So I finally said yes because I thought I I don't intend on living a hundred years like. I definitely intend on dying. It's like on my bucket list. And so if I can find a place where for as long as I can be there, that I can grow and shepherd and develop this thing that I love and take care of clients. And then one day when it's not meant to be anymore, that somebody else can keep it going. Then I feel that I did my job. Like I created something that's lasting. That's amazing. Maybe that's what we so, all want. We just want proof that we were all here before we're not. Yeah. Um, so uh, I don't know if it's like public, but I'm assuming you sold the company for a, a lot of money. Um, did it like, how did you feel after that sort of acquisition? Like what was going through your, your mind, you know, you, you know, thinking back to when you were 
like you said, a million dollars in debt and having to struggle and, and not being able to have that comfort of like knowing that, hey, I, I don't have to worry about money anymore and I can just purely pursue my purpose and passion and, and that, you know, that stuff. Um, did, did it change? Like what changed, if anything, and, and how, how did you feel? Well, I had not taken a salary for nine years and my husband left his paying job and joined us in four years into it. So for the last six years, all of our eggs were in the Tatcha basket and I couldn't afford to pay him very well. Um, so by that point I was living in my mom's house and, um, all his clothes had holes in them. His shoes looked, um, like clown shoes were like on the top it's a shoe but there's actually nothing underneath <laughs> but we had like really bad rain for a couple of years so you just walk around with wet feet um so when when the merger happened the biggest and only thing that i was focusing on was how to make sure that my people understood what we did and that they knew that they were safe and that we did this to protect the company for the long term, not um, not to make it vulnerable. Um, and then I didn't actually believe that we wouldn't have to worry about how to pay for dinner anymore. Um, my husband's pretty good at poker and blackjack, but mostly poker. And so there's a tournament that happens around the Bay Area. and um, he has like a really simple face and, but he, he can do a lot of math in his head. And so he was still going out and playing poker once a week just so we could pay bills. Um, but now he can play poker for fun. And um, yeah. now this time I'm like, you can bring $50 this time. Go wild. <laughs> but we did learn you know, after. You, no, sorry. Go for it. Go for it. I will say um, until I started Tatcha, I had this huge list of things that I wanted in my life. And I, and I mean materialistic things that I hope that I owned one day. I hope I own this bag. I hope I can buy a pair of shoes from this brand. I hope I, my next engagement ring is, is this big. And then after not having a salary for nine years, you realize that you don't actually need very much to be happy. And so um, I don't have really, frankly, any use for the money. And I focus almost exclusively on philanthropy outside of Tatcha. You know, it's a very, I mean, just interesting point all across. And, you know, one of the things that comes to mind for me is, first of all, you know, you go without a salary for nine years, right? I'm curious, how do you live in that time period? Like, I mean, what is it that is making you, or like, what are you spending? Like, how do you feed your child, right? And second thing, Actually, you know what? Let's just focus on the first thing for now, and then we'll go into the second thing. So the pure logistics of it. Um, yeah. I do not recommend this, but it is the truth. You max out your credit card, then you roll it to another credit card. Then you max out that credit card, <laughs> then you roll it to another credit card. Don't do it, but it can be done. Um, and then send your husband out to play poker once a week, and he comes back with a nice little stack of cash, and then you pay the bills with that. And then you move into your mom's house. <laughs> And when your car has dings on it, you just use duct tape. And then when the duct tape wears off, you just put more duct tape on. Um, when you have holes in your shirts, you just roll your shirts up so they can't see it. That's what you do. 
But were you like afraid at all? Or did you like, did you really have this really strong conviction of like, it'll all work out at some point, but right now I'm just dead set focused on reinvesting into the company and making it as, as, as large and, and successful as I can and everything else will work itself out. Or did you have this sort of fear that what if it doesn't work out? Like I'm just racking up all this debt. What am I going to do after that? I think it gets back to what you were saying earlier about purpose and risk taking and needing to just go for it. In the first couple of years, yeah, I was terrified all the time because I also had a newborn. Um, and even little things like I, I couldn't afford to stay at hotels when I went on business trips, but I was on business trips all the time. So I would sleep on my friend's couches. Um, but then when we started our partnership with Room to Read, or we were planning on starting our partnership with Room to Read, I went to visit the schools. Uh, the first one was in Cambodia. And then since I've been to Cambodia a handful of times, India, South Africa. And um, it's not a quick visit. Like you go all the way out to where these schools are. And I would go into the classrooms with the girls and spend the day with them. Then I would go to their homes and meet their families and, and see like the mud hut that they live in with no electricity and no running water and maybe no parents. Maybe they lost both of their parents to AIDS. Um, certainly that was the case in South Africa. And you see that no matter how bad and how scary things could get for me in the U.S., I will never on my worst day have to deal with what they deal with on their best day. And yet these little children who are not much older than my daughter were showing up every day with courage and with hope and would tell you all the things that they're going to do when they grow up and how they're going to change the world. And they, they weren't even just focused on, I'm going to, I'm going to grow up and get a good job and I'm going to buy these things. They were all focused on, I've lost half my family to this disease. Maybe if I get an education and I go into medicine, then maybe I can be a part of finding uh, a cure for what I lost my parents to. So other people don't lose their parents to this. You know, you, you see that and then you start realizing that what I had framed in my mind, what is risk and what is failure and, and um, what is scary, all went out the door. And so I, I keep these pictures of these little girls from our Room to Read partnership on my desk. And every single time I feel like I am too tired or I'm overwhelmed or I'm scared or I, I miss my daughter um, because I'm on the road nonstop, I just look at their pictures and I just, I just remind myself to just to keep going. Yeah, I I think about you know the whole story of like uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Pencils of Promise, but I, I read his book um, Adam Braun, the founder, and in it he mentions you know um, being I forget exactly where he was, but you know it was a similar uh, country, and um, he asked the little girl like if there's one thing in the world like anything, what would it be that you would want? And she said a pencil, literally a pencil to be oh. able to like draw or write, and he he ended up creating like Pencils of Promise, which um, is you know they're building schools and building uh education centers and all this stuff around the world but it's incredible like it's incredible the perspective that you get just by um not even like happening to travel there but like actually wanting to seek out like how different life is in other areas and 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 how much you know how less how much how much more they're able to do with less and like you said it puts things into perspective as far as risk fa failure and how much you actually need to be happy you're right Vicky, on a more general entrepreneurship note, and I know a lot of our listeners are either entrepreneurs themselves or, you know, want to be or, uh, you know, they just love business stories and they're just just they love entrepreneurship. Right. But 
and perhaps this isn't necessarily a generalized answer or it's not just a generalization, but you talk about those that almost a decade of like, for lack of better terms, like just eating shit. Like, I mean, like it wasn't like fun, right? I mean, it, it was like brutal. Like, yes, it wasn't as brutal as people around the world, but like in terms of being a professional in the United States in California, like, I mean, you were like really like not doing like well in terms of like, you know, your financial situation or your time or anything of that nature, right? Like you were just really focused on making Tatcha successful. Is that the level of commitment and the level of um, sacrifice it takes to build a company such as this? I mean, if you gave it 10% less, would it have been what it is today? Oh, that's a good question. I think it gets back to what we were saying with Ikigai, that when you are in the flow state and you feel that you're doing your life's work, it doesn't really feel like work as much. Um, so yeah, it's it's true. I I worked probably eighty hours a week solid for the last decade, and I'm still pulling sixty hours a week now. Um, the only thing that that was ever hard was being away from my newborn daughter. I worked during labor. I took twenty four hours off in the hospital mostly because I was on drugs, and then got back to work the second I got back to my apartment. And then I was on a plane traveling again within a couple weeks. Um, so I missed her. That was really hard. That was a sacrifice. But aside from that, um, there's nothing else that I wanted to do. So, um, after this acquisition last year, um, I know you're still at the company. Um, what's the, what do the next like five years look like for you? Do, do you have any other sort of plans or do you, do you expect to, to continue to, to, to build uh, Tatcha for the foreseeable future? For, you know, COVID-19 has been very clarifying. Um, it has really allowed us to come back and relook at our values as a company and how to be in service to our client and what matters to us as human beings. And so right before calling in with you, I was just working on a new five-year strat plan and it's, everything is about going back to the basics. Our business model has always been very simple. Love your clients and love your products more than anybody else. And the rest is gravy. And so, um, we're going back down to values. We're going back down to company culture. And um, I've just, I've never been more inspired. I've never been more energized about the potential. Um, and then Room to Read, our partners, Funding Girls Education, there's, there's so many kids out of school right now. And we know how hard it is for our kids in the U.S., but in low-income countries, sometimes the, when these girls go to school, this was the only meal that they were going to get for a day. Um, it was the only place that was safe and that education is their only ticket out of extreme poverty. And so the importance of funding girls education has actually never been more important than it is right now. So, um, I'm just, I'm just doubling down. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, Vicki, you know, thank you so much for joining us. And I mean, uh, you know, after your episode, we're near the 150 episode mark. And I do have to say that. It has, thank you, thank you. It has been honestly one of my favorites. Yeah, this is probably one of, of the best ones we've had. Yeah, just, your, sto- your story is just so incredible and inspiring, yeah. and I think that so relatable to like so many people that can really take it take so much away from where you started and what you had to go through to to build this incredible brand. And and I don't I don't know. I just thank you so much for sharing it. Yeah, I think that for those who are listening, it just it just goes to show you that 
I mean, I know we say it so many times. I think that we always want to remind people that there's literally, it's one of those things that there's no like formula. I mean, you never know when entrepreneurship might come to you. Because I feel like had you not gone to Japan, had you not had that experience, Tacho wouldn't have been here today. It wasn't like you were sitting around trying to figure out what am I going to start or what am I going to solve, right? Or like, what does the world need from me? And it just so happened that you were there, you saw the opportunity, you, you know, sold your engagement ring and, you know, here we are today, right? And also being in a position where you're, you start questioning, you know, what's my purpose? And now you're taking these risks like quitting a job and racking up debt. It, it really is a dark place to be in. And, and, and many times I feel like a lot of people struggle with finding the light and, and staying ultra motivated and, and just kind of seeking out more truths and and knowing that at some point things will all turn out okay but you have to keep going you have to keep seeking and not ever stop uh, because that's the moment where you start diverging and going on the wrong path so i, I do want to like applaud you for that but also i think that it's so inspirational for people who might be in that place right now to know that like hey just because you don't have an idea or something that you feel fulfillment from that's even all the more reason why you should continue to seek out and, and expose yourself to new things. And at some point, like you will find that thing. I'm grateful to you for having this incredible podcast because if it was around when I first started, I would have made far less mistakes than I ended up making over the course of the decade. Um, and I think it's wonderful that you're pulling uh, the curtain uh, over for people to see what really goes on behind the scenes with entrepreneurship. Um, because I think that you're right. There is this perception. And I think um, all the media articles that glamorize entrepreneurship, it makes it seem like everybody uh, has a big exit. And, and it was pretty easy. You just sort of hopped from one gilded lily pad to the next. Right. right. And then as a result, when people have the courage to start their own thing and then they run into a failure, it, it, they feel like an intense failure. Um, but I would say that the Instagram version of an entrepreneur's life is kind of like the in Instagram version of anybody else's life. It's never, never like that. So I thank you for giving this platform for people to learn and to be able to tell the truth of what it's like. Can I ask you one question and then I'll let you go? Yeah, 150 please. entrepreneurs that you've talked to and you've, you've gone deep. Almost what 150, yeah. That's a, that's a big deal. Um, for the people who have have really made their dreams come true, what um, what unifying kind of traits or behaviors or patterns did you see in their story or their personalities that made it work out for them? Yeah, it's interesting, and I I think about it constantly. Is like what's like this sort of common thread from all these folks that we feel like success is obviously subjective, and 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 they make you know someone might consider them successful, where others might be like, well, how are they successful? Because you know, just because they sold a company or made a lot of money, like doesn't equate to success. And so it really depends on who how you're looking at it. But from the people that I would look at, who um, and I, I sort of define the most successful people as the ones who just generally are like the happiest regardless of how things turned out and one thing i notice on that note is that they're usually the kindest people like mm -hmm. i don't think that about them like their personality or anything has changed um from when they started to where they were no matter like how much success they've had and so 
it's, it's usually like the most, the people that I consider the most successful are, are usually the ones that are the most hospitable and like not, just genuinely yeah. nice people. Um, mm. And I, 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 I'm curious to know like why that is and, and did they start off that way and, and, or was it something that they sort of had the bandwidth to work on after the fact or was it something that they, they carried out throughout their whole career? So I, that's something that I'm mm-hmm. curious about, but that's what I've noticed. Yeah, and, ju- and just to add to that, because you know, I agree with him, I think two things that stick out for me is one, I think that they don't think they're successful yet. The ones that are, you know, successful for the most part. And I mean, we've interviewed people from every stage, those that are just starting to those that are like in the journey to those that have gone, their companies acquired to those that are retired. I don't think they think they're successful yet, or they think that there's more to come. And it's also something that you touched upon early on was that for the most part, none of them like taking no for an answer. Um, it just, it just like hurts them like to their <laughs> core to be rejected. Right. I mean, like I, I, it was a recent interview and I say the same for me and Pat, like, you know, and the reason why we've been able to go on for so long and to do this podcast was because we don't take no for an answer either from our founders that we reach out to. And like we reach out from the, again, from the smallest and the earliest to, you know, the most popular, most famous founders. And if it doesn't work out the first time, it, we don't really care. You know what I mean? Like it, you just have to keep going. And I think that that's a common thread across many entrepreneurs. And I guess all successful entrepreneurs is that you're not going to win. Most of the time you're going to lose. And there's going to be that one win that covers all the other losses. And I think it's recognizing what that win is. So I don't know. I think entrepreneurship and just, just your life, I think being a human, you just, there's so many lessons along the way. And you don't really know what those lessons are until you look in the past. It was, I think Steve Jobs has, you know, a pretty famous quote that says, you don't connect the dots looking forward, you connect them, you know, looking backwards. And a mm. lot of the things that you've done in your life, they don't make sense as they happen. But then when mm. you look back, you're like, oh, yeah, that that led to that, that led to that. I, if I didn't make that mistake, I wouldn't have done that right, you know. So mm. I think that that's what we've seen. And, you know, it's not a one size fits all thing. But I think for the most part, what Pat said was kindness, you know, not taking no for an answer and being humble. I mean, I think and the three of them, I think they're very similar. Um, and none of them have anything to do yeah. with business or no. entrepreneurship. No. It's just like human, human. Yeah. I mean, like, again, you could go to the best business schools. You could go to the, I mean, I went to law school. It doesn't really matter. You know, like that's just a theory, theoretical approach to, you know, a profession. Mm-hmm. But the people that made some sort of change or the people that even changed education weren't necessarily those that were formally educated. So, you know, and, and it's something you mentioned. It's like those that question, you know, the norm or authority or whatever, you know, the Western type of thinking, especially here. So I think that there's a lot of lessons. Hopefully one day may impact can take some downtime and, you know, go back through all hundred something episodes and, you know, write down, you know, some sort of, you know, common threads and, who knows, like publish some sort of article or something, a book or anything. I don't know. Who knows that, you know, can be a good lesson for people through the stories. And I think that, you know, one thing that we're very, you know, focused on is focusing on the person behind the brand. I think a lot of times people are focused on the brands again, like, you know, through influencers, you kind of just know the brand or, you know, the influencer. But for us, you know, I think it's very important to know why somebody started it. Like, you know, if you have no connection to the product, I don't know. I'm just, I don't trust you as much, you know? Mm. And I think that the long-term life of that product or service isn't necessarily sustainable. 
So you know, I, the, a lot, there's a lot of things, but you know, you know, I think those three. Four yeah, thank, thank you for the are, question. I love it, and I hope you do write that book because I will be the first to read it, and then maybe you can save me some mistakes for the next that. ten years. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank, thank you, you so much for being on the show. Well, keep going and keep uh, keep inspiring. Thank you so much, you guys. I appreciate it. Take care of yourself in LA. Thank Bye-bye. you. Uh,